Unapologetically Brown acknowledges the traditional owners from which this podcast was recorded, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal and Birabiragal people in Sydney as well. We would like to acknowledge elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty across all of these lands has never been ceded and that this will always be Aboriginal land. In part two of our interview with Danya Money, we explore her experience of sexual assault at the hands of a staffer in the New South Wales Liberal Party. We examined the way this was responded to by various people in the party and the many ways in which Danya was let down. We explore the impact of this sexual assault on Danya from a personal and professional perspective and look at her experiences as a woman of colour who's played an active and key role in enabling other women to come forward, such as Brittany Higgins, women who've gone on to get a lot more fame and a lot more recognition. We explore the difference in her story and how it was reported upon. And we look at what Danya's legacy has been thus far in trying to create a better and more equal world for women and especially women of colour in politics. One of the reasons that we got to know you and your your name entered into the popular lexicon is your bravery in coming forward to tell a really important story. And it was a story of an experience that you had while working for the New South Wales Liberal Party. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened and set the scene for us? Yeah, so I guess I was 21 at that point and I'd been involved, obviously, since I was a teenager. And so I'd been involved for some time. I started working as a staffer when I was 18. It was like my first job out of high school. And so I'd been working from the time I could first work. That's impressive in and of itself. Oh, thank you. Yeah, like obviously speaks to your just fantastic skill and capability. And I guess passion based on the conversation we've just had of wanting to change the system. I think we're also just like, as well to to put ourselves forward and and to work really hard because it's our only option. And I do think that's one of the blessings of being raised by migrant parents. I think a lot of people who don't have that have lower resilience and and tolerance for like failure and setbacks. And I wouldn't really trade having that higher tolerance because literally studies have shown that really the difference between successful people and those who aren't is enduring more failure and continuing to try. And so I think I've always felt that there's just literally no option other than working like 10 times as hard as everybody else and putting myself forward for things because no one's going to give them to me. Like I'm the last person that they'll just be given to. And so I think that that has also really shaped how I've gone about things in politics and it sort of really shaped my drive with a lot of people, I suppose, who perhaps have dropped out. I mean, again, barely enough because it's hard. I think, I guess it just doesn't really feel like it's in my DNA to leave. But I think in terms of what, happened I'd been involved in this, this structure for a period of time and, and obviously was was building a career and have these values around how to create change and then working in that environment where you've built up so much going through the experience of having a colleague who works for a senior minister and that member of parliament still around I guess what happened next was contextualized for me after the fact was by council who I saw you know, because I was having trouble focusing on my studies or doing anything, unsurprisingly. And he sort of contextualized it as following a pattern of domestic violence, but where the person was trying to coerce me so that I would acquiesce to a relationship rather than being in an existing relationship. So there would be these attempts to create 
a bond or a friendship or like some kind of intimacy. And when I began to trust him, there'd be like an act of violence. And the first two times that was once at a Christmas party and then a couple of times during a work day kissing me when I hadn't wanted for him to and or touching me when I hadn't wanted for him to and saying that this was what I had instigated or incited or it was what I wanted. And because I was like young and and at the time I didn't really know a great deal about the dynamics of things like coercive control or domestic violence, like I didn't recognise that was what was happening. And I think in particular it's often where I regret the lack of any literacy around healthy relationships that exist for a lot of South Asian families in general, because at the very least, even though it doesn't exist formally within the education system, a lot of people still can access this through their parents or their extended family. And so having no literacy on any of that and then having somebody engage in like gaslighting, manipulation, emotional abuse, suggesting that it is your fault or it is something that you want, even when you feel miserable, like all of these things kind of accumulated over time and the person sort of convincing you it's not going to happen again, getting you to trust them again, and nonetheless it recurs. And I think it just sort of felt like this unravelling and this fog that was descending. Like I couldn't quite, I guess, I knew what was happening was wrong and I wasn't happy, but beyond that I couldn't really get a clear grasp on exactly how I saw it either because I suppose part of it is to erode your sense of, of what you deserve or how you feel that you need to be treated. So and you're being told that it's your idea and you're being told that this is is what you want. And even the simple notion that someone automatically suggests that to you after doing something that is unwanted is very internally disorienting. But as well, sort of beyond that, I also didn't know that, like how to understand my response to trauma at the time. Like I hadn't consumed any of the literature around that. And I didn't know what it meant that I was having a freeze response and that I felt that my brain shut down and couldn't do anything. So when on the one hand, I have this person telling me, this is what you want, you want this. And I don't understand on the other hand, why my body isn't doing anything and it's just shutting down and I'm not really moving or able to do anything. Or in some instances, I feel like I need to appease the other person to ensure that the physical risk to me is diminished or that it's just going to end, right? And I'm going to get out of it in one piece. Like those kinds of thought processes were things that made me feel even more confused. And we now know that like the freeze responses is more likely to track through to PTSD for these reasons. But again, I didn't know that at the time. And so going through that, I'm wondering, like, this person keeps telling me that this is what I want. Like, why is my body not doing anything? Why am I not screaming? Like people say that you're meant to. Why am I not able to fight back? Why can't I say anything? And, you know, it was just very internally disorienting. And I think, you know, another aspect of all of this that I've, you know, since come to understand is how abusers sort of seek targets out functionally to perpetrate their abuse on. And I, once again, like didn't understand any of that or how somebody might seek me out and manipulate vulnerabilities that I had or triggers that I had that might mean that the tendency that I have to want to make other people happy or like hyper empathic traits that I've developed, you know, in part due as a response to some aspects of childhood trauma and navigating a lot of those cultural divides with things that could be abused by people. So a whole lot of like, I think what happened was like locked up in in a lot of these broader problems. And then this culminated in an assault that happened where he had sort of begged that he wanted to reconcile because at a certain point I said, this has just happened too many times. We can't be in contact. And he gets back in touch to say he wants to have like some final conversation that's important to him. And 
then announces that he's in my suburb because broadly the very first time that we had had like a substantive conversation which was also the night of the first incident of harassment was like I had sort of said that my parents were in India and that night I was staying with the supervisor after a Christmas party because you know I didn't want to have to go home when I had been drinking all the way to the Sutherland Shire from the city because it's like the opposite end of the train line in Sydney so he was broadly aware of where I lived and he literally like catalogues his information away and then just announces that he's in my suburb promises that he's not going to do anything and then sort of, sort of like you know I say okay well you're here, I guess we'll have the conversation. And, you know, in the aftermath of the assault that then happened where he would use language initially when I did try to resist of this is your fault and, you know, you want this to happen and things like that. And then my body did freeze up and it just sort of like waited for it to be over. I think it was obviously just enormously traumatising at the time and I think I only knew later, you know, why it's also such a struggle to really piece together what's going on as it's happening because your body and your mind is also trying to defend itself and cope and often during the abuse itself your body and mind know that it's kind of intolerable and you're not really equipped to handle or process every part of what's going on so I mean after that final act obviously I knew that that was an extraordinary violation I hadn't necessarily pieced together all of the reasons why what had happened before was such a violation I knew that something terrible had happened, but still like, you know, I'm still processing all of the traumas from it now. So, you know, in the direct aftermath, I think one of the the most damaging things was just a lot of the responses that I received from people where they would give advice that they felt to be well-intentioned based on realities that exist in the society that we live in. Like, you'll be slut-shamed if you speak about it or your career will be over if you speak about it and these sorts of things. And you know, there was just no real response from anyone that ever offered to do anything about it that was remedial in any way. And then cutting through to when I actually told my story in New South Wales Parliament, no one ever really provided any kind of like public response or acknowledgement around what had happened to me, aside from the fact that my former boss, Shelley Hancock, sort of commented to a Fairfax paper that she wished that I'd confided in her at the time because she would have helped me. Like, you know, these classic media lines that people kind of come out with. And she, I mean, she has my number, like she's thanked me in a hand side speech for being a staff member. She knows how to contact me. If she had actually wanted to speak to me in the aftermath of the coverage, she would have spoken to me rather than just commenting to a newspaper. But nonetheless, you know, I was still hopeful, oh, you know, maybe she'll actually follow through on wanting to help at least now, like maybe that's something. And then I continuously attempted to get through to her in the office and never really had anyone bother to arrange a meeting. And I've come to realise that that's probably because my former supervisor, who I told about every incident of harassment and then the assault as they were all happening, was obviously not interested in confronting his own complicity in enabling what had happened to me. Like, Had there been any intervention at any point or any validation of what I was going through, then I don't believe that things would have ended up where they did. But he would sort of say things like, oh, you know, he's attractive you should just be in a relationship with him like he's better for you than your current boyfriend why don't you just get together with him oh my god it was very misogynistic and I think as well because so many people are so lacking in any trauma-informed perspective to not diminish that but more just to compound why it was so frustrating it was clearly had no understanding of how to respond to the internalized confusion of sense of self and what I deserved that stemmed from the trauma in that he would suggest 
to me that my confusion was what meant that I should be with this person as opposed to the fact that me saying, I don't know how I feel about this, I'm confused, I feel upset, was because something was wrong. Like he didn't ever frame it as being the result of something bad happening. He always framed it as the justification for his advice that I should just be with this person. And he couldn't see any further than his own relationship with that person and and what he knew of that person based on his friendship with them and just sort of thought like, oh, I'm mates with this person. I think they're great. Just go off and be with them. And it just kind of felt like he was never hearing what I said, but just basing every response on his preconceived notions of that person and his weird interpretation of of my words. And, And so I think, you know, it was really compounded by that, like, I think total lack of literacy that also just stems from like living within a patriarchy when no one actually gives anyone any information around caring about women in these scenarios. But this is a massive problem. This is highly problematic because what this basically shows is the mentality. I mean, you're sharing something very traumatic that has happened to you where you've been violated. And for this person to react in a way where he does not understand or empathize, let alone like sympathize with that incident and what's happened and seeing how wrong it is and placing his relationship above that and how he's a good mate with this other person. So that should be all right. That is just shocking. Like to me, that actually, to be quite honest, that just shows that it's beyond, it's not just education, it's and beyond culture. It's just it's just, I, I don't even know. Like, I'm I'm just like, that's human behavior 101, isn't it? Look, I'd agree with a lot of what you've said. And I'm, I'm shocked. And I'm, Danny, I'm taking in what you're saying. And to me, what makes me so sad, I mean, there's so many things that make me sad about what's happened to you. But what I'm hearing from the story is that this could have been stopped. Like, at the first example, where you went forward and said, this is inappropriate behavior that's happening to me. And I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to feel had somebody had, as you said, the trauma-informed understanding, but also just a sense that this is how things start. Sexual sexual assault isn't, it doesn't start and end with the rape in Parliament House. There are steps, there are enabling steps and precedents that lead us to the to the act or to the acts. And just a sheer lack of willingness to step in and say, this is inappropriate behaviour. We should not be treating people like this get a grip like using his social accountability in relationship with that person to say what the hell are you doing you are violating boundaries and behavior and another example like this in your out none of that exists and then it leads to us in, in a sense where you've you're already being assaulted and indecently assaulted in all these different ways leading up to i guess you know a, a, a particular incident it's just deeply depressing to think that this could have been stopped well i mean particularly because the first incident happened as i mentioned after a christmas party where i was then going to my supervisor's house so part of the harassment occurred at the party and then the person followed me without my knowledge when i attempted to leave the party to walk to my supervisor's apartment with his then partner as they lived in the city and so you know, follows me and then walks with me and then keeps trying to like kiss me or hold my hands and stuff and then talks his way into being let up. It was literally like when I was on the balcony there with my supervisor and a friend and the perpetrator was inside the apartment talking to some other people that I first articulated feeling discomfort around what had happened and, you know, just how upset I felt and the advice that I felt I needed on how to navigate what was happening. And the very first response was all like, just give him a kiss and like that'll make him feel better and palm it off. Like what's the harm in doing that? Oh my God. 
I think have this sort of like boys will be boys mentality of like not being able to even conceptualize these acts as anything other than pedestrian male behavior where you just kind of like laugh about it and pat the person on the back and you're just like oh like what an idiot sometimes and like that's all that the, the reaction really is it's kind of like affectionate dismissal of the gravity of those actions and just viewing them as these like classic male behaviors that are seen as entertaining or funny or confusing so it's like the two options are one for women is that the problem is our perception of these activities like we should just get on board we're so lucky shouldn't we be so lucky to be the object of attention why can't you just want it or your behavior led to this you're the fault like you're the reason why it happened like those are the two options it's just incredibly depressing or the third very niche option which is just to internalize that like misogyny and just laugh at it and be like oh yeah like it's just a guy being a guy that's exactly and the acceptance and minimalization of such behavior I'm sorry, but I'm speechless. Oh, don't apologize. Like, I think it is awful. And like, you know, the only reason I suppose I sound a bit flat recounting is that I think you obviously sort of dissociate to an extent. And I think that's probably important to stress, like whenever you talk about it. And the reason to be clear that I'm not talking about the specifics of the assaults isn't because I don't necessarily want to. It's just more because I think as it happens on on how I am today, like I just feel I would cry because I always cry when I talk about it and I just don't want to for whatever reason. And I just feel like I can't really go there just at this current moment in time. And, you know, obviously trauma is very much like a day by day thing. Like sometimes you feel more like you can talk about something and sometimes it just feels like there's a bit of a block there, you know, and today for whatever reason, it just feels like I can't really get into some of the, the words around it. Please don't. Yes, absolutely. Oh, no, I know. And I, do, I certainly don't feel pressured. I think I just more want to like share that just in the sense that I think sometimes people have this like linear expectation of what like a recovery arc from trauma looks like, whereas I just sort of feel like it's kind of a very day-by-day process. And it's it's often something that you indefinitely deal with or live with, particularly because by the point in time that you've experienced traumas as an adult that are akin to, you know, things like sexual assault, you've probably experienced traumas before just because of the tendency, sadly, that exists with trauma where there's a proneness to experience re-traumatization as people do target individuals who have been through trauma. And I think one of the hard parts of dealing with that experience in a broader sense was I eventually found like a psychiatrist and therapist that I see and like working through that very reality that being through trauma makes you more likely to be traumatized. And just like I think how devastating that is in some ways that I'm more likely to be hurt because I've been hurt before. And like, what does that say about like what hope I I actually had of evading experiences like this in some way or what hope other women have of evading experiences like this in some way and I think in particular sort of reflecting on the the nature of what that experience can look like when you do have a conservative background like I never told my parents what happened at the time it wasn't an option they just would have blamed me for letting a man into the house like how what what the fuck were you thinking obviously not that they'd ever swear but like and the trauma of that exactly it's so traumatic. It's it's a double trauma. It's a re-traumatization in a different way, in a deeply violating way for the you to be blamed. And the shame, right? Yeah. I mean, they. I think it's the trauma and the way they make you feel like it's your fault when it's actually not at all. And I think, you know, as well, just because of the fact that I also, at the point that this happened, like hidden from my parents by, you know, sheer necessity, interactions that I had had with like men that I dated or seen before and how far we'd gone 
intimately with, it, with each other and, and things like that. I just the, the simple notion of, of being in a situation where I was alone with a man in the house was something that I knew that my parents just couldn't fathom. Like my own internal world and landscape was just so different. I'd been forced to kind of edit that out in what my parents knew of me. So just that simple bare fact wouldn't be something that they'd understand, let alone understanding how any of these other like risk factors or how that process of grooming had been able to take place in the first instance, right? Like that that's just not anything that they could even understand because why was I ever alone with him in the first place? And so I think all of these different factors and things like having consumed alcohol at the Christmas party or having been friends with a man at work and having trusted that person, all these things would have been portrayed to me as being my fault by my parents. And so like on top of the ordinary, I don't mean ordinary, sadly, actually maybe I do, sadly ordinary aspects of like living in a patriarchal society with all of those forms of blame and and those different kinds of trauma, there was certainly the compounded effect of my own family. I mean, I was able to tell my brother and my now sister-in-law because, you know, he was living out of home by that time and they kind of became like they sort of started playing like this proxy almost parental role is the older siblings because and they were a great source of stability and like comfort for me because I could actually at least tell the truth to like a family member that's right it's so important just even that reality in and of itself it's like oftentimes I I think it's pretty common in South Asian families that if people are fortunate enough to have that relationship with a sibling that the elder sibling does play the kind of pseudo parent role yeah because you can't go to your parents. You just can't. No. And even though you know it's your fault, it really does take something out of you on just this level that I can't quite verbalise, that your parents won't actually see you as faultless. Yeah, I, I know that even for myself where incidents have occurred where I've been blamed and that upset me more or in a way, in a deeper way than the incident itself just unforgivable it's just so damaging where you don't even want to tell the parents then because you know that that's going to happen and then they're going to do this and it's going to make things worse I think it stems also from the feeling of betrayal you feel your parents should be your strongest champions and supporters because of the unconditional love that they have but they bring their own perceptions and misconceptions and look at the end of the day they only know what they know based on their experiences and their upbringing as well. So I think a lot of that is brought to the table, to be fair. And they don't want to come across that way, but it's the lack of education, the lack of understanding, and also not wanting to have that discussion, just like not wanting to have a discussion around sex or touch or you know anything that is a taboo subject. I think one of the difficulties as well for me has been navigating like parental culpability on that. It's still very much a challenge because I certainly do still think that there are choices that that parents can make when they're confronted with, well, what do I ultimately do given that this is my child and I've chosen to have a child and to have responsibility for this person in and amongst that cultural background. And I suppose I kind of like sit somewhere at like a 60-40 split where like 40 is kind of the cultural aspect and 60% is the choice because I suppose I just ultimately feel like you've made a choice to have a child and to you've made a choice to to raise them somewhere that's separate from your own cultural background. But ultimately like as part of raising a child, like you recognize that they have their own personhood and you're supposed to want them to be 
is because I want them to be happy and to accept that person for who they are. And I think a really big problem that I've had is that a lot of the time I feel like the expectation that South Asian parents when they have a child is that they want like this extension of themselves rather than a separate person. Yeah, it's going back to what I think we said. Parents feel like their children are a bit like property, right? You know, like they own them to a certain extent and whatever their beliefs and their dreams should be fulfilled by the child. I think it's really important not to just to culture away the behavior. I think it's, oh, to, you know, it's due to the culture. The more I reflect on it, it's about their own trauma and what they've internalized and people who, who live in that state and don't consciously choose their actions. They're just repeating patterns that they learned. And I think I would really question, for example, I, I always think about this idea of choosing children done yet, something that's like on my mind. And I don't think my parents chose children. It was the social expectation. Yes. And they never questioned why they wanted it. They deeply wanted it. And they did choose it after nine years of struggling and multiple miscarriages. They they had us by choice. But the conscious thinking about what it means to have a child as opposed to it's my right. It's my birthright to have one and I'm having them. And then I'm not consciously thinking through the trauma of how I was raised and those decisions and what I'm perpetuating and inflicting on my kids. And I think we had this conversation with uh, an author recently on the pod about, you know, this idea that I'm just, you know, they might be like, well, I'm just a victim too. And I'm just, you know, making these decisions. But I think there must be a level of responsibility and accountability because they are inflicting the trauma on us through these decisions and these, all these, when they do that, when they knee jerk react to blame their daughters when they wouldn't knee-jerk to react to blame their sons, that's a choice at the end of the day. And when it's held up to them, they've got a choice, double down or admit or go, actually, this you've brought up a point of reflection for me here that there's something about the way that I've been brought up. I constantly blame my daughters. I think even from the time of being small on, on like lesser levels, like just crying at certain reactions or even just the propensity of, I think, a lot of, Indian parents particularly to like hit their children like quite hard and very frequently yes yes my mum had to like tell my dad to stop when I was what like 18 19 but that's when it stopped right like because my mum finally just saw too much cruelty in it and that's how long it took right like an entire childhood to be like "Mm, it's probably an adult now probably don't yeah and I, I think that actually when parents hit their children that is part of the trauma of how we feel about ourselves. If someone can actually hit, I mean, my mom beat the shit out of me, right? Like Me too. And my brother. Same. And to her, it was because this was how I was brought up and this is how you discipline children. But I always felt like she was really educated more than anyone else and, you know, she had a great job. Would it not have occurred to you that this could actually stem on abuse or cruelty? I remember having like bruises that were in the shape of like my dad's handprint because of like how hard he would hit me or like sometimes, and I think this is particularly the dad thing that would happen. Like you'd be hit by your mom and like sometimes when she'd lose control, she'd like just throw everything everywhere in my room. And this is a particularly maternal thing to do. And then with my dad, you just sometimes, I don't know if this happened to you guys, but like you'd just be pulled out of the house or like put somewhere into a timeout or whatever because they just didn't want to see you. If like anger got to a particular point, the father was more like the shutting out, whereas the mother was more like these visceral reactions. I mean, my father still hit me, but it was just always interesting to me that like the other aspects added onto that were like, I don't know, my mom's emotions like overflowing with this anger and my dad removing me from the situation by being like, 
you need to get outside of the house or like you need to stay in this room or something like I just can't deal with you yeah my dad was absent so you know he wasn't there and he wasn't much of a disciplinarian he was more of the good time kind of guy my mom obviously was everything but also I think she brought a lot of her trauma into bringing us up or bringing me up as a child and I think that again has created trauma in me and I think with with all of us you know to some extent where when something as traumatic as assault happens we start to think you know how do I deal with this is this something that is supposed to happen like you know you have all these questions like you actually do not know how to deal with it because there's so many layers of other trauma and baggage that come with you yeah And it's like this very foggy feeling of upset where it's kind of like hard to get to the root of what it is that's actually driving you to feel this distress. You know, a lot of the times when people sort of speak very simply of the notion of like having a trigger for trauma, it's just like, I don't even know where to start sometimes. Like there's just so much and all of this, this very intermeshed web of flashbacks that it's like, I don't know where it started. Like I don't know which one experience to pinpoint as being you know, the real linchpin here. Like, I just feel like there's so much that I almost get so confused that I can't figure out exactly what's making me upset because there's just so much of it. And I think, you know, particularly with my parents, like I remember when I finally, as an adult, started confronting them about some of the abusive behaviours that they had enacted, the response kind of just was like, oh, well, like we received X from our parents or like we've apologised once, like, isn't that enough? almost as though like it was you know so part of a the framework of understanding that they had the world but equally I think I felt in those instances like well that's also been my understanding of the world through them and I made different choices as well like you know in terms of the anguish of a child like you know crying when they hit or objecting to other behaviors or like just general alienation and restrictions on your capacity to spend any time with your friends or make any of these other sorts of choices or even just simply do things as like extracurricular activities or with your education that went slightly outside of what their expectations were like in seeing my niece or in just like seeing other children like I personally just feel like this unbearable anguish at like watching a child cry like you'll do whatever you can to make it stop and the sheer amount of will that you need to have to override that biological drive to comfort your child and not to just hit them and make them feel even worse. They're like punishing you for your distress. It's just so awful. It's so awful. I mean, again, we've gone just right off onto a tangent and an important tangent that's come up a few times. But I think it's just like what makes these traumas like so hard to process. You know, you're coming from a perspective of your distress ultimately being an inconvenience and where you're used to your distress kind of being ignored by people who are in positions to to value it who are uniquely supposed to value that distress and sometimes I kind of think oftentimes a lot of people as you sort of touched on refer to this sort of trauma in South Asian context is like you know very commonplace or whatever but isn't that exactly what we should be so troubled by there is this mass severe traumatization that has occurred that we are ignoring because it is quote unquote normal or quote unquote expected. And the huge disadvantages that it creates for you in being able to have a frame of reference for like healthy relationships and in how to make sure that you feel a really grounded sense of self and really grounded boundaries around, you know, your body and that you're able to understand risk factors as they come up like we're actively deprived of those 
abilities and those skills. I was not able to build them. No one ever gave me the tools to develop them. In fact, my parents went to great lengths to rob me of the capacity to develop those abilities by limiting social interaction, by creating very arbitrary limits, obviously, that meant that I couldn't spend time around like boys or whatever else. Like if they ever saw like a, a family friend's son behaving in a way that they thought was flirtatious, they would just kind of like remove us from that situation. So that very notion is sort of like of protection allegedly and that's like robbing you of, of any capacity to understand how to develop those sorts of understandings and boundaries as you are growing up and you're meant to develop them exposes you to risk and so like you know one of the big things that really upset me I suppose when my parents were approached for that interview was like it's kind of your fault so like I don't know why the fuck you're being asked to give advice on how to protect children or like how to be good parents because let's be frank the shit that like has happened with a lot of parents is literally what enables further abuse down the line because you are given no sense that you deserve anything in terms of your like physical boundaries and it's it's what leaves you feeling like I think so trapped in the moments that it's occurring and so frozen you're still upset but you can't consciously have like a some kind of like snap reaction because you've never been allowed to have a snap reaction because you were just hit yeah it's just a Beautiful encapsulation, Danya, of the way that these things are interconnected. So thank you for for opening up and and sharing that because it is a connection and a compilation of experiences. And um, I think you summarized it so beautifully. Just following from what Nivi has said, I think I would like to kind of bring this into a situation where what were, we've talked about your parents and we've talked about, you know, how this is like how your parents have reacted and how our families and the culture. But in terms of when this had happened to you from a work and professional perspective, and I guess the social perspective, what were some of the responses that you got when you actually, you know, came forward just within the party, within, you know, the media, within your friends, other communities that were around you? Yeah, sure. I think, I guess like reactions were very mixed. Family and family, friends were kind of like shocked. My mom cried a lot because I didn't trust her enough to tell her which was a very nice way for her to send to her own anguish in my experience, but a very classic South Asian mum response. So there was that. And then I think, you know, in terms of my friends, what my friends had known for some time because I had confided in them. And I think for me, a big thing has been, you know, sort of chosen family in terms of friendships and, you know, still being able to build that kind of like social infrastructure. And I suppose it's a lot more common than we'd like to admit to ourselves that, there are often people who have had these quite difficult experiences in terms of their families who can't access that same kind of um, reliance or social connection from parents necessarily. So I think friends were always a really big part of how I have handled things. You know, obviously, especially when you're migrants, it's not really like the majority of your family as an extended family network tends to be around you. So that was a really big source of support for me. And separately, I think, you know, my brother and my sister-in-law and like my sister-in-law helped a lot here because I think interestingly, some of my brother's reactions were still quite protective and I mean he still was immeasurably better than my parents but I think it's interesting in terms of the different ways that um like sons can be raised instead of daughters like I remember when I first told him and my sister-in-law like what had happened as it happened versus when it came out in the media like my brother just like wanted to make me go to the police like straight away and my sister-in-law had to kind of like talk him down from that and you know help process things more quietly and securely and allowing me some time to like process what had actually happened because again like as I'm sure you guys know it takes time to sort of really accept within yourself the 
a normative violation that's occurred, such that you might even consider it as something going to the police about when you especially got all of those layers of family and other trauma. And so I think one of the big things for me in terms of like how my like network has responded to it, both at the time and having started to do media is also like it really corresponds to the sort of journey that I myself have had in coming to terms with it. Like I think it was only really this year when I had done stuff with the Saturday paper where I, I shared more about the experience that I'd had that I kind of really had felt ready to unpack some of the the trauma of like never having had a response from anybody at the time, like the aspects of this that were also very difficult when it came to my race and the aspects of silencing that I felt uniquely related to my race. Because I think the survivors that you tend to see profiled in the media are white cisgender women, like, you know, the Tracy Spices of the world, Brittany Higgins, Grace Tame. And, you know, these women tend to also have like narrower sets of objectives that are more perhaps socially palatable. Whereas I think when you tend to see women of colour on this pathway, because of all the experiences that they've had, there is more that they demand should be changed and there, there is more that they are angry about. And that anger and that the nature of those demands and I suppose the trauma that underpins it is just so much more obvious and harder to move away from when you are a woman of colour. And I think society is inherently uncomfortable with that and they prefer the simple stories where it is really just one thing that has gone wrong in someone's life rather than someone having a more complex agenda of the things that they'd want to change. And that isn't to say that the lives of those women have been simple, but it's more just in a comparative sense of when you're comparing the ways that a society can relate to a white woman with who's like heteronormative, cisgender, and fits into their usual understanding of the world, who hasn't, at least in, you know, in terms of how the public understands them, hasn't had a large amount of trauma beyond the experience that's being disclosed versus women of colour who tend to bring to the table a lot of other political demands and asks around how they are broadly treated and all the different aspects that have fed into their experience and what led to their abuse. It's it's not as easy to take. You feel so much more uncomfortable. It's harder to relate to. I suppose like that's where I feel the importance of, you know, our conversation about all of these other tired aspects. Like the reasons that I've become involved in politics and the reasons that feminism are important to me are inextricably linked with all of these very complex cultural underpinnings. And I can't separate that from many of these incidents. So what I bring to the table is is a lot more complicated and harder for people to digest. And I think it's why it's, it's, there's been this, I think, bizarre experience within the media, particularly of being profiled to a point, but where... It kind of like very randomly and arbitrarily cuts off and ends because people just aren't comfortable with like identifying with me as like a mainstream figure. So it's weird where somehow you're on front pages and you're on Q&A and you do these other things, but the ways that people refer to you or refer to your work are still somehow like very limited in their like broader cultural lexicon. It is always the the normative white woman that is seen as the face of me too or is labelled in that fashion. And a lot of the work that I've done has just been like erased. Like Brittany Higgins came to me before, like months before having told her story. Like Kate, the woman who passed away, was a good friend of mine. Came, We became friends through the campaign that I started. It's bizarre being at the crux of some of these events, but your role in them is erased by virtue of the fact that the events happen to white women or you are viewed as like a support person for those white women who are an accessory to those stories, as opposed to 
the person who was helping to solidify that person's sense of self and where both of those people have come to your campaign because of the work that you've done, right? It's just bizarre to me that we identify inherently like women later down the line who have come to me as being the faces of a Me Too movement. And that's not to say that I should be. It's literally just simply that there is a trend that I think has been followed kind of throughout time for all women of colour. And it happened to Tarana Burke as well. Like she started Me Too in 2006, but only really got broad recognition for Me Too in 2017 when fucking like white celebrities started posting hashtags. You can do an enormous amount of work and yet you're never validated in and of yourself for the sum total of that work in a way that matches what you've done unless all of these other external events match up just so and white women allow it to happen. And I think in some ways there's a lot to be said for the complicity that I think white women particularly can have in the erasure of of women of colour. I think it's often a very purposeful choice where they kind of internalise the sense that there can only be one and that it needs to be them. 100% done, yeah. I think those of us on the outside looking in, we assumed our assumption was that you had been erased from the story. Yes. That was our operating assumption and we were coming to this conversation to wonder whether that was actually correct or not because we were seeing this story unfold and the names that went viral, the stories that went viral. And then we hear about your story in the timeline, what you were doing as an addendum as opposed to being someone who was really instrumental behind the scenes. So can you tell us a little bit about your role, because I think we need to talk about that role and we want to centre it. Um, So tell us what you were doing with your campaign, because you were someone who had this horrible experience and understood that it wasn't just happening to you. You tried to see the bigger picture. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you did? I guess like I suppose that sort of touched on some of that cultural background as well, right? Like I'm just not prone to really assume that things are happening to me because I'm just unlucky versus, you know, those systemic factors. And so I think I've just always thought from that, frame of reference but I think because of the values that I've had I just sort of felt like you know if I take this opportunity to speak out I want it to kind of like count for something and I think I'd be failing almost this my own moral and ethical principles and values if I if I didn't take the opportunity to try to help other people and so I created the website and, and set everything up so that it would launch on the day that the story went public and it's kind of just been a bit of a force unto itself and it's just been like it's it's hard like you know you receive a lot of women's disclosures and you're kind of like tasked with helping them tell their stories advocating for them doing various other things and like it's, it's difficult because part of the reason that you are relevant is just like the total failure of other social systems and things like that to provide that support and so there's I think sometimes a bit of grief in almost your relevance but it's been a lot like obviously Kate approached me Brittany a lot of other people like there's a lot of women who have approached me with stories that they'd like to tell it's a challenging job because I think 50% of the time you'll have a first conversation with a person that they'll be so struck by how unprepared they are to grapple with their trauma that you don't hear from them again. And the other 50% is people who are prepared to deal with it and who where there's just a very, very like strong bond that I guess needs to be formed. And I think, you know, I'm obviously grateful for that because I've come to know a lot of my really close friends now through that work. It's obviously exhausting. And I think one of the really substantial elements of grief for me in doing that work has simply been the sad reality of realizing that if I had been white it would be a lot easier for me to get resources for my work and to that extent realizing that having like very sad thoughts around you know reality that 
unfortunately, race is like an impediment to the success of, of activism. And that that only means that you need to keep doing it and living with and shouldering that distress because there's no other way to get past it. And so just having to kind of like sit in that injustice is very, very difficult because there wasn't any other campaign that existed like mine. And then I told my story and have helped like other women to tell their stories and and obviously been a big part of, I guess, like coverage around Kate and Brittany. And I think it's just been, you know, bizarre sort of seeing how coverage in these stories has unfolded. And I was also like the name survivor in a in the article to do with Tracy Spicer that came out through BuzzFeed exposing like, you know, a lot of the failures of now Australia and their attempt to sort of set up an Australian analogue of the Me Too movement. And being a part of all of these odd cultural moments in the feminist community over the past couple of years, somehow not really being seen within them has been like a very strange experience because you're doing all of this work, but it is such a struggle for people to like literally see that you're there. And I think part of it is also this propensity of white women when they are framed in the media a certain way to like assume that that's what they unquestionably deserve. Like if you're told enough times by journalists that you're the face of movement or you started a new movement, you just accept that that's true. And I think that that's like a part of the privilege that a lot of white people are raised with where they're more likely to accept that they are that figure of power and then internally frame themselves as that powerful figure going forward. And I think they underestimate like just how much of a privilege that is, right? Because you're like being given this like sense of, of elevation that you're like primed to accept is valid and that you deserve whereas you know I think the challenges of being a woman of color in in feminism in Australia which obviously has a horrible history of racism is that you you need to be doing your work and fighting many multiples harder than anybody else in order to get your work off the ground where you're doing a lot of the work like I think as well with a lot of white female faces of movements that's the entire thing. They, their faces of something. But a lot of the groundwork is being done by other women who are involved in the sector and often like Aboriginal First Nations women and women of colour who are like running organisations or campaigns and things like that. And I think, you know, what's fascinating is just that, you know, for example, with Tracy Spicer, she was seen as one of the founders of Now Australia, but like she actually quit from now and ended any association with it like two weeks after the biggest, you know, sort of like deluge of publicity began around what now Australia was doing so right as the publicity hit started her actual labor contribution to now Australia was basically over and I think in terms of Grace Nina Fennell started let her speak and started that campaign yet somehow Grace was lauded as this face of of the campaign that she didn't start that's whether there had been 17 survivors who had been publicly assisted by Nina and who had told their stories through Let Her Speak. It's like literally history is somehow being rewritten. Like Tracy was credited for the work that now did and that board included First Nations women and women of colour. But those women weren't ever credited for the work. And, you know, in terms of the stuff to do with Brittany Higgins, this arc around what's happened within political staffing, I had started my campaign and, you know, like she had come to me. When she told her story, it was just treated like the first time anyone had ever told story of assault that had happened in politics and it was like the beginning of this cultural moment and I suppose I contextualize it in these other stories just because it is this just proneness in the media like it isn't like more often than not responsibility for social change is is never 
accurately bestowed. And if even Tarana Burke needed to wait over a decade to get simple attribution for her own work, what does that really say? And even when she did get attribution for that work, people still continuously wrongly attributed the work to others. Like there are still a lot of people who say that Alyssa Milano just started it all with a fucking tweet. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> and that's often the arc that's expected. Like literally somehow years of work will just be erased because someone makes a tweet with Tracy Spicer who said she fucking tweeted. Like what? For white women, all you have to do is like 180 characters or less. And yet <laughs> for women of colour, it's like a fucking decade of struggle before literally you even get credit for your own intellectual property. Like you're fucking kidding me. <laughs> And even then, other people are clamoring to get credit for your work. Like, it's just bizarre. And I think coming to the realization that it is so rare for women of color to get like credit for their work has been like a bit of a sobering one because, on the one hand, it's very personal, but you also can't take it personally because it's just so much bigger than you. And I think it's just one of the frustrations that I have is my agency and capacity to change that is very limited by virtue of who I am and often relies upon needing to negotiate with white women to force them to sort of like see that problem and deal with it and recognise the ways in which they've been problematic and negotiate with them to like sort of cede that power, which is extraordinarily exhausting in and of itself, like justifying why you exist. It's the double and triple work that goes completely unacknowledged. And Danny, I think you've put it so eloquently. The last question I want to leave you with today is what can we be doing to support you? So what can those of us out there in the community be doing to support and uplift the incredible work that you've been doing? Oh, thank you. That's so kind. I think if anybody ever wants to sort of like assist with the campaign, that's always something that I'm going to take on. Like we're working on some new stuff like I've started working with Our Watch on some reforms to do with media ethics and I want to start up a corollary of sort of the Time's Up fund that exists in the states that provides financial support to survivors who want to engage in legal action with like a sort of a tied list of barristers because even to the extent that sort of like the Working Women's Legal Service and things like that exist, you still have to pay for a barrister to actually represent you in court. Yep. And that's a really big bar to a lot of women taking legal action. And so there's that. I think like obviously if anybody has the capacity to sort of provide any financial support to the campaign, that's a really big deal because it's extraordinarily difficult, I think, for basically all women of colour to really be able to do the work because often you have to take like a huge financial penalty in a way for doing the work because there's so much of it to do, but it's not in any way acknowledged as, you know, in any financial way. And so it's often just an enormous literal like challenge with your life, like juggling all of those things because there's no version of yourself that is ever going to stop doing the work no matter the financial sacrifice, but it also inherently limits how well you can do the work to not have that infrastructure because you're just constrained by still needing to make like ends meet. So to the extent that, you know, anyone can sort of provide financial support or donations, like that's obviously a really big deal. And I think as well, like one thing which in particular I've been looking for that I'm totally incompetent with is like people who understand graphic design and things because I need to revamp the website and like update it with everything that's been going on for the past like 18 months and properly relaunch the website and everything. I'm completely hopeless with it. And I've been trying to teach myself all of this stuff online and I've just been so irritated with all of the jargon geared towards like random privileged white women about like women who code that I just keep rage quitting before I do it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
it just makes me so annoyed that it's like if you just like do this online course or watch these youtube videos about coding all your oppression will end blah 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 and it's just like <laughs> no and i hate all of you and i now just feel too irritated to actually consume this information so you know if anyone has those skills that would be pretty cool because it's, it's very very difficult to do that stuff but i think the most important thing is the first part of it which is just simply that you build campaigns by people coming on board with them and wanting to support that work. So I, I think for me, I'm very much a person who hates the sort of top-down mentality. And the reason I got into this work is out of a genuine desire to want to like work with other people and hear their ideas. And, you know, the joy of like literally being able to collaborate with other women on these things and, and uplift others through that work. And so if anyone ever wants to sort of contribute to that work, I think that's really the biggest thing because my hope is that it's a reflection of as, you know, as many women as possible. Absolutely amazing, Danya. We will definitely include all your links to your campaign in the show notes as well. And we just want to say thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for being honest and open and transparent and vulnerable. And thank you for coming on and spending your time with us this Sunday afternoon. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. And thanks for creating like a space that was safe enough to facilitate that and also just a space in which it's it's possible to unpack all of those other complexities that exist around these events. Because I think often with the way the media covers it, you're pigeonholed as sort of the byproduct of like a kind of linear progression of events on a timeline as opposed to all of the kind of context that exists behind those events, it's quite personal. And I think literally because people don't see it, they don't know to ask about it. That's right. And you you tell they fit the story into the white mould and it's a different mould. Exactly. And it's really the first time actually that, you know, the sorts of questions that you've asked have really been asked around what some of those other factors have been. Because the questions that I have been asked about race to the extent that I've been asked them, which is very little, are like very limited in what they see. It's just kind of the optics in the media, but nothing beyond that. So I really appreciate it. I'm sure this will also make our parents very uncomfortable. And that makes me laugh. <laughs> this has been awesome. I mean, it's been an incredible amount of time. Daniel, we've loved chatting to you. Yeah, it was lovely chatting to you too. Thanks so much. And oh, let's work out how we can continue to support and uplift and I don't know I think this has been fantastic hey everyone we do want to remind our listeners of our three main segments agony auntie where listeners can submit questions to us about their experiences of racism colorism sexism and in their everyday life our second segment pc patrol where listeners can ask for advice on how to be a good ally and deepen their understanding of racism and internalized racism and of course our third segment no doubt where we tackle everyone's favorite hot button issue cultural appropriation so please do send us your questions your thoughts opinions stories lived experiences around this topic and we would love to discuss and share them on our segments also we would love if you would subscribe to our podcast unapologetically brown via the h triple m or m podcast network out on itunes spotify stitcher and pretty much all the podcast apps out there please subscribe review rate and tell all your friends about our podcast every share makes a huge difference to us also follow us on instagram facebook linkedin and twitter and please do slide into our dms 
with your questions. All this information will be in the show notes as well. And lastly, we're thrilled to be working with HMMM or M Podcasts. And thank you so much to Marcus and the team for having us. And a huge thank you to Bombay Royale for our music. You can't wait to grab a chai or a tea, but for the love of God, not a chai tea. <laughs> with you on the next episode. <laughs>